Wednesday, happy middle of the week. How are you doing, Tim? Doing pretty good. How are you doing, Juan? Great. Always looking forward to this uh, middle of the week break and 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 very excited that we're always getting uh, more people coming join us and and uh, we got kind of a lot of people, a lot of names that look familiar and a lot of new names too, which is always really really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And today we have uh, Karina Turbis from. Uh, from uh, Data Coalition, welcome. Nice to have you, Karina. Yeah, we just we were just uh, uh, we were we were one of the topics we were talking about, kind of internally between and I were like was policy, and then we kind of chatted internally, and we're like, hey, this would be a good topic to, to talk about, but I really don't know much about it. Let's go chat with somebody who does know. So um, internally, I know we're very well connected. Data World is connected with the Data Coalition, so. Uh, we're glad to, to, to have you here and you can be part of this conversation and, and, and see where we go. Awesome. Thank so, you so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So anyways, cheers, everybody. What are you guys drinking? Um, I have a gin and tonic. Beautiful classic. Awesome. I like that. How about you, Tim? I am drinking just some whiskey with a little bit of vanilla simple syrup. Oh, that's a better one. I, I always do what, what, let's see what I have in my in my in my bar and then I looked up for I had bourbon and tonic so I looked it up quickly and then I found out there's something called a BLT a bourbon lemon and tonic except I didn't have lemons oh. on the line and actually pretty good it's a nice uh, summer drink so anyways cheers yeah cheers uh, hopefully uh, I've, uh, I've had uh, I've had a lot of gin and tonics but I've never had a <laughs> bourbon and tonic so that's definitely yeah. a little different no, it's actually pretty good. And I think it's, it's some twist on the Japanese highball, which is also stuff like that with uh, um, with whiskey. But hey, so um, as always, anybody share us where you're, where you're coming from, where you joined us from, what are you drinking, um, and, and how do you got here? It's always cool to see where people are coming from. So anyway, so again, Karina, thanks for joining us on this conversation. And kind of just like as a quick recap, what we've been going, talking about the last couple of weeks I mean, we've, we've really talked about the data personas. We've talked about kind of the features of a data, of a data catalog that are needed. Uh, like last, last week, we talked about data lineage, which is one of those important uh, features. Uh, we talked about knowledge graphs. But I think one of the things we'd like to go do now is kind of like if we, we're just having this conversation about policy and, and the topic about data policy. So... I just want to kind of kick that off with you, Karina. It's like, what is data policy? From your um, and, and by the way, I, and I love if you can give us a little bit of intro of you know, just talking about who you are and, and, and what is Data Coalition and, and what's your role and, and then yeah, kind of yeah, that would be great. Policy. Sure. So the Data Coalition is uh, we bill ourselves as America's premier voice on data policy, and really our mission is to make sure that government data is governed by responsible policies that make sure that data is uh, open, accessible, and high quality. Uh, and I function as the lobbyist for the organization. And as my boss just informed me, I am the only data lobbyist around. So um, as far as what data policy is, it's still growing up around, you know, uh, it's, just, it's not as well-defined as maybe, you know, foreign policy or these other uh, kind of issues. 
Prior to working for the Data Coalition, I was with the Council of Professional Associations on federal statistics, working with uh, federal statistical organizations. So this was the Census Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, and statistical policy is a little bit more well-defined, right? We have legislation that defines privacy standards and how we collect information and all of that. Uh, data policy is a little bit broader. So this includes things like administrative records. Um, you know, what are some of these broader topics? How do we get good data sets to train AI? Those kinds of questions as they come up. So uh, my job is to really work with the, I work on the federal level um, about what are the, the things that private sector and public sector really need to make good data available to the people who need it? Okay, so, so what I think about data policy, and what, so I always wonder is how much of this is just actually kind of from the, the public sector, the government, versus actually we think about data policy from a private, like in, within your enterprise, like what is the overlap between there and, and how, much should we, how much should the enterprise of private be thinking about data policies? Um, I think quite a bit because, you know, imagine how many private sector companies rely on data that's produced from the Census Bureau. You know, so many people use both the decennial information, the American Community Survey, all of which, you know, even the monthly jobs numbers, and that's a, and that's a number that informs, that is really put together through a variety of sources, including state data. So if the federal government didn't have good data management policies about how they were going to manage this massive data set that we get from the census, that we get from our taxes, that the Social Security Administration, how then private companies absorb that data and give their value add to it becomes a nightmare, right? I mean, we talk about uh, the federal government has to manage its data the same way private enterprise has to manage their data. The difference is, is that federal data isn't proprietary. So, so we, I mean, we've talked here a lot about just like the pains of, of, of just data integration. Um, how, how similar or different is it in, in, in the federal government? Or is it just like just another big company, just like another company, but it's just much bigger or, and, or they have very different types of needs or, yeah, or they're very overlapping or, or? I think there's some very similar pain points, I would say, um, but um, also some unique pain points to the federal government. Um, for example, the federal government has uh, privacy protections that are informed by the Civil Rights Act that, you know, as we are thinking about how do we protect people's privacy and, you know, instituting good disclosure avoidance systems, there are minorities who are at risk, a disproportionate risk of disclosure and at a disproportionate impact uh, if information were to be disclosed. That's something that the federal government is obligated to look about, look after, that, you know, private enterprise isn't necessarily, but that same problem of, you know, the left hand not necessarily doing what the right hand is, you know, that is a big problem with the federal government, you know, one great example that's come up is recently is the master death file. We, there was, you know, reports of the IRS sending out payments to people who are deceased. And that's because the connections between the master death file kept by the Social Security Administration and how the IRS can use that to distribute payments is not very clear. 
there's also data quality issues around that file and you know because that pulls in from the states so the same effective integration of data from multiple sources is a huge uh, pain point for the federal government that is probably similar in a lot of these large private sector enterprises as well. That's, that's super interesting. And, you know, and I know one of the things, Juan, we've been talking about is like, you know, how much of this is a people problem? How much of it is a technology problem? How much of it is a process problem? I'm, you know, I'm sure that you probably have, you know, people who are more process experts that are separate from the data experts who are separate from the subject matter experts, you know, uh, how, do, how do you navigate all that? And what does that kind of look like? Um, you know, that is a really great question. And I think is one of the biggest challenges I have as a lobbyist, you know, in a different type of policy area, say I were a foreign uh, policy advocate or lobbyist, I would know exactly who to talk to. I would go talk to the chair and the ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. I would talk to the state and foreign affairs subcommittee on appropriations. I would know who to get to. But when you're talking about data, it impacts every subject area. So, you know, if it's the question of, I wanna get machine readability as a standard for all federal data, who there's no one person I need to talk to, you know, I need to talk. I can't reasonably talk to every agency that's in charge of a data collection. So it then becomes this tangle of even raising the awareness that it's an issue to, you know, some key allies who might be in influential um, positions, but it also might be the case that this isn't something that they've ever heard of before, and they're just trying to figure out how to, you know, get funding to assist in affordable housing. You know, like that's their goal. And then convincing them that, well, you should take $40 million to fund machine-readable, accessible, open data so you can make better decisions down the line becomes a really hard ask, right? Because they're just trying to get people into homes. So this this issue of like subject matter experts usually know what data they want, but aren't necessarily aware of how to get that good data or the immense amount of effort that goes into it. So that's where a lot of what I come in is doing is a lot of educating about how to get to where the point that they need. But the, the flip side of that is I don't necessarily know what they need. And so it's a lot of listening to understand the questions that they have and how I can help them get there. So, so folks like you are are, are, are are serving as a bridge between like what people are trying to go find and then you're actually go finding that data. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, you know, my background is, I have no background in data science and statistics or anything like that. You know, my undergraduate degree is in linguistics and my master's degree is in national security policy. So um, this is something that, if I have a question about it, I know policymakers are going to have a question about it. So I really rely on experts like data.world to help make me informative and help me be able to translate the data needs into policy answers. So th this is interesting, Tim, we've talked about on, on the personas, right? Like the producers, if we think about producers and consumers, right? You have that, what we've called the, the data product manager in a way. 
Uh, we can get a little bit more specific on the knowledge scientists that we brought up before, but essentially you have people who are trying to consume data and people who are going to produce the data. Uh, and then there's this big gap, right? And that's where we've talked about those other personas of, of the data product manager. So that seems like that's kind of the role that you're, you're, you, you, play, you play in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. No, this is, I, I find this fascinating because you think about it, how you think like the government is something like this weird different entity, but at the same time, it's just like a, just another big company has the same types of problems as we do. And, 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 but it's super powerful that we need to be able to understand the relationship and, and, and make sure that we want to, we want them to be successful because we're going to go use that data too. So. And an organization that is, I'll be frank, not on the cutting edge technology wise, you know, I, like I always have to remind people that legislators and staffers are working with PDFs when they're writing these, you know, thousand page bills, they are drafting and saving PDFs and sending them around to each other. So when you hear something like a machine, machine readable data, that's not necessarily something they have that professional experience with. So, you know, when asking them to like imagine these sort of cutting edge technologies, it really takes a lot of vision, you know, and, and these are people who are very smart, but they are attorneys, they are political scientists, you know, so it's, it's really a, a subject matter, uh, like a, the data literacy in Congress can be really challenging. Oh, yeah, that was the phrase that really came to my mind too, is data literacy, right? Like, I feel like that that challenge is not just in, you know, federal and not just in companies, it's kind of everywhere, right? Is, is there, what are best practices that you've seen that, that enterprises can adopt from data literacy projects or, or data policies within their own companies? Or is it the other way around? <laughs> I think it would have to be the other way around. I think you guys need to tell me what are the best practices so that when I'm talking to, you know, CMS and all the, and you know, the VA about how they're going to manage their electronic records, what can I tell them about what you have learned? <laughs> So what, what, what can you, what, what can we share, Tim? I'm, I'm sure that after we go open the conversation, people will have a lot to say about this, but in your experience, Tim, how, how are companies dealing with, with, with data policies? No, that, that's a great question. And, um, you know, uh, obviously we're a little bit biased at data.world because we're always thinking about open data marketplaces and, and data catalogs. But I, I think the one thing that we have noticed is, you know, taking a very meta metadata driven approach to, to this, right? And actually trying to organize information in ways that is really accessible, you know? And there's a lot of ways to do that, but I noticed that this is something that seems to be really popular on sort of the open and sort of federally available data. Obviously companies are doing this a lot as well, but things like tags and taxonomies um, and being able to uh, say that, hey, you know, these things over here are, you know, maybe this kind of level of sensitivity or subject to these kinds of regulations versus these things here. So a lot of it seems to be a lot around organization and making that organization accessible to the consumer, the consumers that are working with that data. Um, I don't know if that's something that you also kind of see on your side as well as being something that kind of helps in terms of accessibility. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, what you said reminded me of that. This is um, such a hard organizational challenge because you have to take, all these people who have a different job to do and now are asking them to document their data, you know, their 
metadata in a way that maybe they never had to before that they're it's really asking a sh like an organizational and a culture shift especially as we look at you know new laws like the foundations for evidence-based policy making where you know we are now asking every agency to inventory their data sets and you know if you are a claims processor at a federal agency you might not necessarily see the the reason for that you know or it might not affect your job you're not getting any extra money you already have 80,000 things to do so how can we make this as painless a process as possible and get a lot of the buy-in necessary from people within the enterprise to make make that happen yeah so, yeah, absolutely and yeah and go ahead Juan yeah so when, when I think about kind of policies with data policies in a, in, in a company I'm always I think the first thing that comes up to mind is like you got GDPR and CCPA right all the protection stuff and you don't want leak data leakages and stuff and I'm, so I'm, that's what I'm thinking I'm not seeing uh, Pierre's question is in, in terms of data storage and, and data storage security what are you seeing as like the standard operating procedures uh, for data storage and security within within the government? Like, I mean, you can imagine that they have a lot of very data that has to be super protected, right? How how is that different or, or related or, not, or to, to what, what what people are doing within the enterprise? And I mean, I'm thinking that they have to be super protective about that. Yeah. So there are varying levels of security when it comes to privacy protections. So. Um, Title 26 is the law that protects IRS data. And this is this is data that is under lock and key. You know, like you are not, I think the Census Bureau is the only agency that IRS can share data with. And then, you know, kind of a circle out from that is census data, which is locked up under what's called Title 13. And then beyond that, you have um, the laws called CIPSI, uh, Confidential Information Protection and Efficiency. Acronyms um, that protects our statistical data, um, but then you have these massive troves of administrative data that were not collected for statistical purposes, um, that were not, you know, given these sort of informed consent as we think about it. But is there a way to protect that privately and use it in a way to aid evidence-based policy making? So we're seeing a lot of a uh, lot of attempts to tackle that. So there's things like uh, the Census Bureau has been playing around with synthetic data as a way to protect its privacy um, using uh, differential privacy. Um, there's different access mechanisms. Uh, I know a lot of organizations right now are looking at how to tier access with different levels of security and you know multi-party computation and things like that. Um, this is where we really get beyond my uh, scope as a policy person that there is so much math involved in things like this, especially like differential security and synthetic data. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the policy then is to rather than I would say tackle these like individual technologies is come together to come up with like a list of guidelines, you know, a set of standards, a way of assessing risk that the then the experts in the federal agencies can execute on, you know, what are our priorities around privacy? Is this concept of informed consent something that we can, that is tenable in this? You know, how, that's where a lot of these like privacy questions around like the GDPR and the California privacy protection law 
really kind of come into place. We don't necessarily want to stifle innovation or research, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we need to acknowledge that privacy and security are very real and an incredible asset to getting people to hand over their data. So that's where like the policy needs to come in as sort of guiding the ship. What are the criteria yeah. for how we that, do that? That, that's that's kind of that line that I've been trying to understand with like the whole GDPR and CDPA is like I I definitely understand and I agree that we need to have some sort of personal I agree we have to have some sort of regulations but at some point it's like wait it just makes it makes life so complicated that like that that they, if you think about it from from the enterprise perspective and this whole topic about like data governance it, it it's it's fear right so I'm I have to now in addition to go figure out my day-to-day -day challenges of managing data that I want to make sure that I'm providing clean data, quality data, everything. I now need to make sure like there's all this fear that's been that I need to be able to go, to go deal with it. So in addition to all the normal stuff I go deal with, now they've added all this fear that I have to go do. So you start adding all these kind of requirements on governance. It's like the way I, the way I, the reason I do governance is just to, it's fear reason. So it's like I'm basically policing and it's kind of a, a protective measure. And, and I think governance has started out of that. And it, we really need to flip that around. I think we need to be able to have to kind of think about governance, not just from this policing measure, but how can I actually do use governance kind of from the positive side, like can actually embrace it, embrace it in the positive. I think that's that's this line that is just that is it, it got annoying. We got to figure out how to turn this annoying thing which we we need but turn that into a positive i think right. that's something that we need yeah to not just the not just the lock and key approach but actually how do you balance both sort of the security and you know exposing it and making it available right um the analogy that someone from um the internet privacy foundation association said earlier today that really struck with me privacy is like the brakes on a car you can go as fast as a cars can go because we have a braking mechanism. You know, it's, it's ah, those, that analogy. sort of, I thought that was a great analogy. That sort of security and safety mechanisms is what is gonna allow us to go so much further with this, the amazing power of especially, you know, large data assets. <laughs> I'm gonna take that analogy and I'm gonna put it with, the, with like this governance. It's like, I, I think we've been used, we've been kind of connecting, or at least I personally believe that governance has been more like that break. It's like, ah, I got it. Like the break is always in front of you, but really you got to think about governance as the whole thing as like the engine that can get you forward, but also a break that can slow you down when it's needed. Uh, and, and obviously you don't get on a car just to go break. You need to, you need to accelerate, you need to right. break, you need to go, right? I like that analogy. That's a good yeah, one. That's a that, yeah, that's actually a really interesting analogy because, you know, if you if you keep on going with that analogy, maybe too much of governance these days is like, well, let's just not build any roads because that's scary. <laughs> and, you know, let's make the speed limit 10 miles an hour because we don't want cars that, going too there fast. There we go. Right? Instead of thinking of it, you know, more like, uh, hey, if we just put the brake mechanism in there and we make sure that people can see out their windows, everyone's got visibility, oh. right? Right, right. Like, we have ways of making cars safe without, you know, making them, and there is limits, right? Like we, we do have speed limits, but they're reasonable speed limits as yeah, opposed to being not, 10 miles an hour. They're 10 miles an hour. And then when you're on, and if you go to West Texas, it's not 65, it's 80, right? Right, right. I really, really like this analogy. It makes so much yeah, sense. Yeah, and then right? if you go to, 
if you go to Germany and you're on the Autobahn, there is no speed limit because they invest so much in not only their cars, their infrastructure that the cars run on. If we really want to beat this analogy. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, because then maybe technology or, you know, your processes, eventually they evolve to a point where you can unlock you know, easier access to things. Things like differential privacy are starting to go down that line of thinking of like, hey, what could we do? What could we enable here that could accelerate things, right? And then we get into Formula One and everything, right? <laughs> All right, I can't, I can't do differential privacy and sports. That's like too far out of my, it's like really pushing. We're breaking the analogy now. <laughs> All right, so talking about differential privacy, this is a topic I have been wanting to pay more attention and it, it, it's, it intrigues me so much because just 10 years ago, it was pure theory. It was, I mean, it just came out of research, right? Uh, uh, so Cynthia Dworka, uh, um, uh, Frank McSherry, right? These are the folks who really came up with this uh, differential uh, uh, privacy just 10 years ago. Um, and now it's, it, 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 a lot of the motivation was to go, I mean, for like managing the census data, open data. I've always thought it's like, even like in data marketplaces, you think about where, where the world is going, what data the world is doing too. It's like, one thing is like, I'll give you access to the data. But the other thing is like, no, I'm not gonna give you access to the data. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you access to, you can ask query, you can ask questions to that. And I'll make sure, right, through differential privacy that you're getting, you're getting the, 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 the good expected results. And I wonder how much of that differential privacy is gonna start kind of being part of just day-to-day uh, enterprise data, right? Because right now people can, I mean, we, I mean, people are sharing data. I'm sending data over CS, uh, over still FTP sites. People in insurance will send data like that. Like, are we going to really shift to a place where we're going to go in, uh, not just share data through APIs, but also then have this differential privacy layer on that? I, I, I wonder about that. I don't know if you have any thoughts. I mean, as as far as federal data is concerned. Um, how the census goes, so goes the rest of federal data. Because the, the Census Bureau just has the most data. That is what they're set up to do. And um, they, they are in full, full bore for differential privacy. Um, the 2020 census data projects will be differentially private. Starting in 2023, uh, American uh, Community Survey data, I believe, will be differentially private. Um, and then from there, you have the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, uh, the Economic Research Service, which administers SNAP data, is all relies on what will soon be differentially private data from the Census Bureau. Um, it is, it's coming through the sluices. Um, there are, I think, some legitimate concerns about researchers from this um, on both sides. Um, Steve Ruggles out of the University of Minnesota IPAMS has some, um, and uh, Dave Van Ripper have some, some methodological concerns about this. So I don't think that, I don't wanna say that differential privacy is, you know, solves all of our problems as far as how we use data, but it's, it's coming, it is the wave of the future, so. And you think that's all, not just in government, it's something that's gonna be also kind of in the private sector? Um, I don't know. I think that's a question for you. If you, how can you, if you were to use a public data set that was differentially private, how does, how do you then integrate that into the data sets that you have? Do you have to then integrate that epsilon value? How, how does that work? Because I think that's still a question that some of the federal statistical agencies are curious about as well. 
Interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know that there's necessarily a good answer to that on our side. I'm curious what you think, Juan, but I think I think right now a lot of companies, you know, that we talk to especially are are finally starting to get onto the path of like oh, hey, like we could have a copy of the data, which is the full data, but we could, we could have a, an anonymized version of the data. And then we could even have an aggregated version of the data. And depending on the use case, I'll give you one of these data sets or the other. Like, I think that we're just starting to get to that point now where we're like, oh, we don't have to lock down the whole thing. We can actually have a few options here. But I think that differential privacy is still very much something that hasn't been fully reconciled yet. So I, before we kind of wrap up here and open up to everybody else, I have one quick que last question here uh, is we have GDPR, CCPA, what's next? Like what, what, what should the, pri the enterprise private sector be, be on the lookout? What, what, what's the next thing that's, that, 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 that you see from your purview that we should be looking out and be prepared for? So I think with the, both the GDPR and the California bill is, that is large enough economies and large enough regulators that that is going to force federal privacy regulation with how much data is shared across borders. We, the federal government is going to have no choice but to take a look at this. So there are going to be, um, there are going to be a lot of bills introduced in the next, you know, two, three, four years that really start to deal with this. Um, and again, that gets at the question of what are the parameters for safe and private data. And I think that having some good answers about that is something that private enterprise can do. And, you know, thinking about that from the perspective of the federal government will become really important, right? Because, you know, if you look at some of the largest, um, largest data firms in the world, they are going to want to retain privacy protections that allow them to run on the same profit margins. And mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, uh, federal policymakers are, are some savvy people. And uh, I would just, they are going to ask them sharp questions. Hopefully their staffers and their committee staffers are definitely going to be able to um, think about that very critically. So having some, some good, solid, uh, you know, good faith, especially from not the big three about how to have good privacy, responsible privacy protected data will be, I think, something that will be a huge conversation in the next couple of years. Well, thank you, Karina, for your time here. Um, I wanna wrap this up here before we open it up to everybody else. But again, thank you so much. We really appreciate uh, this conversation. And I am leaving so happy with this analogy of the car and speeding and the brake. That is great. I'm going to start using this in talks and I'm going to be writing about this. I'll give you the credit for it. Thank you so oh, much. Don't, don't credit me. It was definitely from uh, this other woman. I'll send you her name, Kelsey. Uh, she she was the one who who introduced me to it. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Let me go. Let me. Uh, right. Thanks for everything.